So it's October 5th. It's the night before our walk to feed the hungry in San Jose. And that begins kind of a walks, walk to feed the hungry season for us as we are also doing a walk in San Francisco in two weeks and a uh, walk in Sacramento a few days later. And I was asked uh, if I could talk a little bit about the work of Buddhist Global Relief to begin. But in general, our, our topic this evening is care of the earth. It's been a, a theme for the entire week, and this theme has been reverberating around the planet as Dharma teachers um, have begun to take very seriously the need to teach about what's happening to our environment and to our climate and to our potential future and put that in the light of Dhamma to try to give as much support and, and hope and help to human beings and um, instill as much encouragement as possible in all beings <coughs> and that we may uh, change course. So part of what uh, we're going to do tonight is, is have uh, give a chance for everyone to speak uh, first the, the nuns and then uh, have a discussion. But at the moment I'll just begin talking a little bit about Buddhist Global Relief. So Buddhist Global Relief has, is a fairly young organization and it's this is the fourth year that we're that they're having walks. Yeah, the first one was in 2009, I guess. No, 10, 10, 2010. And I know the sisters did a, a walk, even though that doesn't make it into the press usually. They walked along the ocean in um, in solidarity in solidarity with Buddhist Global Relief and the walk in New York. That was the first major one that, that uh, happened. And then in 2011, actually on um, September 11th, 2011, <coughs> the 10th anniversary of the bombing of the Twin Towers, we held our first walk in Northern California in San Jose, and we walked from San Jose to Palo Alto. It was 18 miles. And that was just because I, I, I was so inspired by Buddhist Global Relief that I really wanted to walk all day for BGR. And I thought, well, maybe a few people will come along. And a couple hundred people showed up, and about 40 of them went the whole route. And there, were, there was another walk that year besides the one in New York, and it was in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And then last year, things blossomed to be about 12 different walks. And um, this year, I think we've got about the same number. So just to say what Buddhist Global Relief does, first of all, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi recognized that there 
weren't very many Buddhist charities. If you compare to Christian charities and Jewish charities and Islamic charities, there were a very short list of Buddhist charities, and most of them are not originating in America or in the West. And he felt that, you know, we, we really are a religion of compassion. Why aren't we putting that into action more? Why, why isn't there something more organized um, to provide support? And so a group of his students uh, got together and really wanted to do something concrete. And they just, after a lot of reflection and discussion, they decided that the issue that was really closest to their hearts, in fact, broke their hearts, was to think about (coughs) people not having enough food. And, of course, uh, many of us think about children who don't have enough food. Families, parents who, who, no matter how much they try, no matter how hard they work, they don't have anything they can beg, borrow, or steal, or barter, you know, uh, to get enough food for their children. And oftentimes mothers don't eat because they they give the food that's available to their kids. In some places, even though there's food, there's there's not proper nutrition. You have situations like in Ethiopia where there's there are some areas where there's no vitamin A and, and the kids, you know, 20% of them go blind by the time they're five. Wow. And um, so, so there's there are there are lots of different places where there's need, and Buddhist Global Relief is small. So what they've done is very judiciously choose situations where we can do a lot of good. So the money that comes in in America does a tremendous amount of good in in the places where we do this work. So in, in Haiti, there are two programs, and one of, and they're in uh, Port-au-Prince, in a particular village area, where there's tremendous poverty. And what, there's a food program that feeds a thousand kids a day. Their only hot meal that they get, their only meal, many of them, and some of them walk five miles to get that meal and they're they're open every weekday and they they feed they they put out a thousand meals and (coughs) it keeps their kids going and and we read stories of of kids who you know my father died in the earthquake since then we haven't had a house we live in a tent and my mom is is working um you know, on a construction job where she's trying to make enough to keep us going. We can't go to school anymore because we can't pay the, it costs $350 a year to send a child to school. Most of the schools are not public, they're private. And most of the children don't get an education. So the other project there is a school that's being built. This was all the brainchild of one woman who visited Haiti and was so moved, she started this organization called What If? And so What If is, what if, the What If Foundation is a partner with Buddhist Global Relief. So Bu- Buddhist Global Relief 
like I said, is small. We're all volunteers. Um, and we work with organizations that have the expertise and work on the ground. And we have a close relationship with these organizations, and some of them are small, like What If? They're doing great work, very grassroots. And some of them are more medium-sized. And tomorrow, the executive director of Lotus Outreach is going to be joining us, and she'll talk about the projects of Lotus Outreach. Lotus Outreach has been... Oh, man, it's the one that makes me cry. It's about the girls in Cambodia who don't have enough food, who get pulled out of school, families that don't have enough food. A lot of times they're taking care of their parents who are disabled and trying to go to school. And uh, Lotus Outreach gives them rice support, a 50-pound bag of rice every however often. Hmm? My, my, I'm not sure if it's every month or two weeks or quite what it is, but they give them rice and they they give what's needed for the girl to go to school, her uniform, cost of her uniform, her books. If she's too far to walk, they give her a bicycle. You know, the basics. <coughs> There's one young woman, she was a miracle this girl kept going to school and she said she went to school every day hungry until the rice support and she said the first time they got the rice was the first time she ate till she was full and she's telling the story in tears and we have photos of her you know she's just this lovely young woman and what often happens is that families girls drop out of school to go to work they have no education, they have no skills, and they often wind up in the sex trade. I mean, what a horrible dilemma to be in as a parent, as a child, as a young girl. You know, you hope that they're telling you the truth about going to Korea to do domestic work, but it's very unlikely that that's what's actually going to happen. So Lotus Outreach is so connected there on the ground that they can even, you know, like a school teacher said, this girl's not coming to school. The Lotus Outreach person went to their home, and sure enough, she was all signed up and ready to ship out. And they said, we will put you on the program, give you the rice support. And she stayed. And, and actually, that was a few years ago, and now she's gone beyond high school. She's gotten... Um, training in computers she's she's in a particular program and she's destined to have a good job and most of these young women want to come back to their villages as teachers as doctors and it's just so beautiful to see you actually save a life with rice <laughs> you know you save a life with you know the simplest thing it doesn't cost us that much the, the, the meals in Haiti for the kids, 67 cents a meal. That's what it costs. And you're feeding a thousand children who wouldn't otherwise. Yeah, wow. So, we've got other, I'm not going to go into detail about the other projects, but a number of the projects we have um, in various parts in Asia and in Africa involve sustainable farming and better farming practices. Uh, rice intensive, they call it intensive rice program, 
intensive grain program so people are trained in how to use less chemicals, less so you have less expense, less, less inputs, as they say, and are able to increase their yield dramatically. So many farmers are women. Most of these farmers are women. And a lot of times they struggle to even raise enough food for their family, and they don't have enough to go to market and you know be able to provide for their family, really. So this is a huge support for them. We have their Lotus Outreach has another program that gives training in things like computers, beautician work, seamstress work, basic work, and they and they give this training to women who are in the sex trade. They get them out of the sex trade, and they also give the money to educate their kids, which is huge because <coughs> those kids are living with an incredible stigma. Mm-hmm. The society and you know what what your value is as a woman who's had to resort to prostitution. Um, we have pro- programs in in Africa to help with nutrition, micronutrients. There's a lot of education that goes on about about health and eating. We have programs that help de- um, develop systems for clean water. Um, yeah, so that kind of gives you an idea. And then we have a couple of programs in the United States. And another one you're going to hear about tomorrow is from the executive director of Valley Verde, who we've got a program in Santa Clara County to work with low-income families who really can't afford to buy vegetables. And they're being, they're, they're being helped. They're, uh, Valley Verde works with the families for one year, giving them everything that they need to start an organic garden in their backyard and to be able to raise food and then and then it's also a community effort the people come together and they learn about gardening and they share vegetables and it and it restores a lot of the <coughs> the, the social systems that they've lost coming to the United States so they they reform community and they work together and um you know they're they're taught about they're given the all the skills that, and all the materials that they need to raise garden raised beds drip irrigation they learn about water reclamation they weren't learn about the environment they learn about sustainability so Raul we'll hear from him he's the executive director and founder of Valley Verde it's a great project and it's a great project and. Um, we're also going to hear tomorrow from our local charity executive director. Christina Egan is the executive director for Loaves and Fishes Community Kitchen. So, so last year we started to identify a local charity for each walk so that 10% up to $3,000 would go to the people in need right there, wherever we're walking. And uh, Loaves and Fishes... Uh, family Kitchen has been serving people. I actually don't have the statistics off the top of my head, but they serve everybody. Yes, um, they, it's in San Jose. They focus particularly on uh, children, seniors, and homeless people, and families. I mean, yeah. So it's beautiful work. In San Francisco this year, we're going to be sharing proceeds with Martin DePores. And the 
executive director will be Charlie will be coming to talk to us about what they do in San Francisco. And we are also in Sacramento, we're sharing proceeds with the Sacramento Food Bank and Family Services uh, Food Division. <coughs> and I love what they do because, you know, instead of giving people little bags to go home with of stuff, they lay it out like a farmer's market. And people come and they can pick what they want. Mm -hmm. And they can and they and they have like like coupons and they can and they can just do this in such a dignified way. There's much more community around it. There's much more conversation. It's kinda like what happens when we go to a farmer's market and stuff in the grocery store. You know, and it and it's just it's beautiful. They they wanted to come up with a way that really was gonna be able to provide the food but provide the dignity and really support people in, you know, feeling kind of normal, <laughs> you know, because don't we want that, you know, we want to have our, hold our head up, you know, and, and there's nothing so different about any of us and any of the people who use these programs, you know, and, and there's nothing so different about any of us or any of the children in our lives than those children in Africa or the kids in Cambodia that don't have enough to eat. <coughs> and probably, I mean, there are so few girls that get to go to middle school or high school in Cambodia. So rare. You know, and the school that they're envisioning for in Haiti is, is amazing. It's, it's going to be a building that these kids who live in tents who have no place to go when there's a downpour that they can go to and they can be safe at. So that's that's all I want to say. But thank you. You can tell I love the BGR. <laughs> oh, hmm? three and a half years living in tents. Yeah, I guess. I guess, and with the grief of having lost. And then sometimes they're separated from their siblings because the parent can't take care of them all. And yeah, it's really tough. Okay, so we're just going to let whoever wants to appear, whoever wants to talk first. I just want to say thank you for inviting us to come to see you. And I think, it's, isn't it the first kind of evening we, we, we spent with you in that way? Yes. Yeah. I think it's your only second visit to Karuna Buddhist Vihara. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's very, you know, even it's so close to the airport and to the railway and the street and everything, but it has a peaceful feeling, you know, so mm -hmm. it's a very joy to be here. And even I'm not super, you know, well, but um, I'm, I'm still happy I came and can take part in this walk tomorrow. And also, like in San Francisco and Sacramento, and you know, before I was a bit resting in your room, and then I saw on the table you had a, the program for this month, and there's one talk you give at one point, or a half day long here you have, which is quite like something about living in a crazy world or something like that, you know. And you know, when I hear all of those, you know, things, you know, which you have been mentioning and, and the climate change and all what's going on. I mean, it's just like we're living really in a crazy world and and uh, 
you know, if, if the outer is a, is a reflection of, of the inner, then you know, that, that says a lot about you know, the, the state of mind. Uh, for many people who uh, you know, kind of together create a situation like this, where there's so much suffering and, and so much destruction, because simply because of ignorance and greed. And you know, even there are so many you know religious institutions all over the planet, and you know, we ourselves find ourselves also in a position of you know kind of presenting that um, symbol to, to society, but it, it's kind of pretty um, little, you know, how what it has effect, what the effect it has. So. Um, and I really feel very inspired to just really do <clears throat> whatever I can to help with, um, you know, bringing this the situation more to the awareness of of others. And and I see very much, you know, I, in order to be to to be able to do that really well, I have to foremost also you know, look at my own uh, ignorance and my own, you know enmeshment in, in this huge system of uh, consumerism because even if even if one has a lot of good ideas it's it's not very easy you know to start to really make changes on a big scale and I think you know it gives people a lot of hope and a lot of um, self-confidence you know to be able for example to get the guidance like from PGR for example you can you know, just you can do this, and this is pretty simple, and one can already, you know, kind of have a, a big impact, you know. For example, with this, what you say about the, I mean, all, all of the projects are very admirable, but especially that about the, you know, a Green Valley project. I find it very good. It combines basically, you know, food security for people, plus it, it works on a communal level, you know, that they bring their networks together, when they share, you know, the work in the gardens and when they share the harvest. Plus also it educates a lot about uh, climate change, you know, and about the environment. So that's a, a really wonderful project, you know, where you bring all three levels together. It's like the personal level, the communal level and the global level. Because we have to, you know, be able to work on all three levels in order to and a, a chance actually to you know to um, support the shift with, with, which have to happen and uh, you know I'm very much a fan of Bill McKibben and he always says you know these movements they don't have much money but they have number one you know they are standing in truth which is a huge power and also there's a lot of courage and, and creativity you know, these three elements, the standing in truth, courage and creativity can move mountains and history has you know, proved it that it has happened already many, many times. You know, that that you know, humankind has undergone like a big shift in, in a world view and that's how we come out from the caves, you know, until today. And that there's a much bigger intelligence, you know, which is working through 
the process if one has the ears and, and the heart, you know, to listen to that process and to just pick up, you know, whatever is the right thing for an individual, you know, to contribute. And in our practice, like the one we are teaching, like meditation practice, is a very good tool, you know, to enable us to fine-tune our minds and hearts, you know, that we can actually connect on a deeper level with what's needed. And, uh, you know, coming together as a group like this is, is also a very great support because alone it's, mm-hmm. it's very, very difficult. And, you know, I'm very glad that, uh, you know, we have the sisterhood and we, we make an effort, you know, to meet from time to time and support each other and, you know, try to, um, you know, create um, create like a, a space, you know, where people can come and, uh, you know, can find their own center maybe and, and can connect with this deeper process which is which is moving and so many people you know they are so distracted because of consumerism and the media you know they, they just can't actually take in what's happening that we are in a very dangerous situation now and, and it's you know it's proof there's about five times as much uh, fossil fuels and coal and so on already found as what we can afford in terms of carbon budget to burn and I think the you know the fossil fuel industry is determined to burn this and it's really it's a very dangerous situation and it's unclear, you know, how how people like us be able to stop this, but we have to try. And you know, little meetings like that is a, is a beginning, you know, where we just share openly what's going on and not, you know, feel um, that we have to make it nicer than what it is. I feel, like I feel very happy to be able to meet in truth like this and because I trust that you know if we face the truth then we will know what to do next we might know you know the whole plan you know till everything is accomplished but if I know the next step and I feel confident it's the right step that's good enough for me it wasn't good enough for me you know in the past but I feel like now everything is so in such a huge um, upheaval, you know, that I am happy to know just one step. Mm. Yeah. So thank you, you know, for coming and thank you for inviting us and mm. look forward for tomorrow. Yeah. Mm. <coughs> I appreciate your welcome. It was very nice to be here. It's very natural. Appreciate your, your hard work and dedication. It's been a place to be GR and to climate, bring the, the climate crisis more conscious. 
for people. And I know this has been close to your heart for a long time, so it's very lovely to see you living it so clearly. Just hope that you take care of yourself in the midst of it all, because you need to keep going a long time. I think when I first um, kind of took in the the quite uh, frightening or terrifying or impossible, as sometimes it seems, situation that we are in as as uh, as, a, as the human race who are on this trajectory of, of short-term pleasure, short-term satisfaction, and not really seeing the, the long-term picture and looking, and, and to a large degree for many people, like disconnected from our roots, disconnected from our natural real connection with the earth being part of the earth. I think for, for so many people that's it's a concept or even not a concept, you know, maybe it's not even a concept, but it's like, you know, for so many people we're living a little bit kind of aloof from reality. And uh, I think the first time I really took it in, what that, how that adds up, it was pretty terrifying. And uh, for a while I was sort of in a bit of a shock and not knowing how to meet that. And then so mysteriously something kind of came through that gave me a really strong sense of hope and um, a wish to in some way benefit this situation. And this, that was many years ago and I didn't really know how to meet it on an active level. It's felt just too big. And I tried in my community, I was, in a, I was living in a community, and I tried in my community to help, you know, to ask people to, to maybe use less and, and change, and nobody wanted to know me. Shut up. <laughs> Not interested. I want my comfort. You know, I don't want to be told what to do. And, and I can see, well, it's, it's a really difficult situation because you can't, until things get really clear, you can't... Um, insist that people change their ways because they're just going to find you like a fundamentalist and think you're paying a neck and go and do something else. And uh, so there was this sense of like, well, I just don't know what to do. But somehow this, this uh, sort of force came through that was saying, you know, do what you can. And at that time, this was long, quite a long time ago, at that time it was about... Um, Meeting the, the fear within myself and the, the fear of death and the fear of powerlessness, all those things to work on that and the, the, the greed and the confusion, which I'm still working on, those things, it was, to, it was to just really go deeply inward and to work on that level. And now, kind of many years later, it's almost as though I've, I've sort of got in, like going into a monastery and then coming over to America it's almost as though I've sort of come out of, of a cave or something and I'm looking and it's like, oh my goodness, everything's going in the same direction as it was 20 years ago, only we're much closer to the edge of the cliff now. And uh, it doesn't in any way make me feel like I want to go back into the cave. It makes me feel like, okay, 
Who knows what's going to happen? We, we cannot know. The future is unknown. It, it hasn't been formed yet. But the, there are causes and conditions in place. And if we carry on the way we have been over these last, I don't know how long, decades, hundred years, whatever, we're, we're destined for, for destroying ourselves and many other species along with us and leaving this beautiful earth with a lot of scars. And uh, you know, many of many of the things that we do are, are kind of quite unconscious. It's just listening to the to the airplanes going up, you know, all these planes. And you know, I also fly. I'm going to be flying in the springtime. Occasionally, I go back to the UK visit my family. <coughs> so I get in those planes and fly, and, and all of that carbon comes out, and just the same as all those other people are in there at the moment. And that has a, a very serious effect on the on the, the carbon emission the, on the on the level of carbon in the atmosphere, which has an effect on the on the greenhouse effect, which has an effect on the melting of the ice caps. Which is, everything is is affecting everything else. And I think I feel like at this time, what's most really really urgent is to wake up to. The reality of that, and it's very difficult to do because we kind of—it's so much in our lives, and even us as renunciants, it's still very much in our lives. We can't. There's nobody who's not involved in this in some way. But to to wake up to the the, the reality of it, and you know what is the what is the result of my actions, and in any way that we can, start to turn that around, so we can do it ourselves. Individually, I really appreciate this, uh, you know, the, the personal, what we do ourselves, and then the community, you know, how we encourage or communicate with each other, and the systemic, the systemic, the large picture, which is uh, very difficult to meet. You know, but there are things like, uh, I know that I, and the Institute went out on a demonstration together. Um, which was pointing to the need to stop using carbon, you know, fuels, fossil fuels, and to turn to um, sustainable energy or renewable energy. And so there, there are ways that we can meet the, the big picture. And we often feel like, well, it's just me, you know, what can I do? I, I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm not brilliant, I'm not, maybe not a great writer. I, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're not this or not that. What matters is what you can do. So each of us have something, a gift, that we can bring into this situation. We're all, you know, we're all we're all born from this earth. We're all part of it. And sometimes I feel like we need to really consciously connect with that reality, not to stay up in our heads thinking, "What can I do? What can I do? Oh my goodness, it's all too much." But to come back, kind of ground ourselves. And maybe even ask the earth, touch the earth, ask the earth, you know, what, show me what I can do. What is my work? And even if it's just something very small, do that. And then that starts to open doors, make connections. And then uh, maybe you find that you have skills you didn't even know you had that you can bring. Or maybe just the fact that you're doing it help somebody else to acknowledge, oh yeah, that's been on my mind for a long time too, and I've been feeling anxious about it, but, you know, 
I didn't, wasn't doing anything because nobody else was doing anything. And so we just don't know the effect of our action until we do it. So to have the courage to do, you know, do, do great actions if you can, fantastic. But do little actions if you can too. They're also really, really important. And to, to speak to people about you know, why it matters and you know, why you care. What the, the consequences of business as usual would be. And, you know, each of us, we, we are just little people, you know, we don't have any great powers. None of us are in positions of great power, we're, we're a small group here meeting also. And we just had a, a, a local Bihar on Friday, yesterday. We had our little group, and it was also a small group, but it, each of those people were there because they wanted they, they were interested, mattered, they want to do something. We want to be able to talk together. And one of the things that uh, I really appreciated that one of the young men brought up, there were four people in their 20s there, one of the young men said uh, that he'd noticed how, how um, when he talks about climate change or climate crisis, it's not popular. People don't, you know, if he puts it on his Facebook page, people don't click like very much but if he writes about something else I'm like oh yeah <laughs> and uh, and just to, to take that in that that's part of the picture at the moment because so many people are not conscious or afraid <clears throat> to be conscious of it so in some ways that makes our work even more important to remain conscious and to encourage others to be conscious because there's a certain point where it shifts from let's all just ignore this or it's all too much it's all too big to it all breaks apart so the, uh, quite often it's um, noticed that uh, apartheid is mentioned as an example, and that seemed impossible apartheid in in South Africa seemed impossible and then Berlin Wall. it changed and then the, yeah, the Berlin Wall has been so there are things that, that seemed impossible that, that have changed you know because enough people get become conscious, and when enough people can become conscious, then there's enough. I don't know the the illusion cracks, because we are kind of living in a dream world in some ways. So just uh, even though the task looks looks big, or even enormous, or even might you might even think impossible, although I don't think impossible, it's worth doing anyway. Do what you can anyway. <coughs> To do, it's better to do small things than to do nothing. So I hope uh, that we will all find our way of offering at this time. And I just wanted to add, I've read in Bill McKim's book, it's seven percent, you know, which is needed. Seven percent of a of a society needs to become, you know, conscious for it to shift. This is not doesn't sound that much. I mean, it's still a lot, you know, but it's not kind of seventeen percent. Yeah. So then you're, you're relatively, you know, <coughs> think about what percentage each of each us are in that seven percent. It's kind of encouraging, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It's very nice to be here, sister, and uh, yeah, it's kind of. I was thinking, hearing what you were saying about the work of BGR, it's kind of simultaneously very heartening and also kind of very heartbreaking, actually. It's just really, 
kind of somehow points to that thing that right there in the centre of the problem is the solution and something about really turning towards the suffering in order to be able to actually, you know, with, with a very small gesture make a very significant impact. And, uh, um, I don't know, I was just kind of um, sort of thinking during the meditation a little bit about just, um, you know, what we were saying in the beginning about how to sort of meet this and, you know, using the Dharma and our practice as a way of... Um, you know, like knowing how to respond, really, because I think that's, you know, quite a big issue, just that you can have all the information, but kind of how to respond to it, and uh, I was just kind of thinking in terms of, like, the f- framework of the five precepts, and, uh, you know, I, I think I first took those kind of, you know, in a, officially, properly, about ten years ago, and uh, very much <coughs> kind of had the encouragement at that time to... Um, because up to then I was like, oh, the fifth preset's kind of hard and wavering a lot and just, um, you know, it was just kind of giving the encouragement, just take them on whatever level you can at this point, you know, and so, um, you know, the, the, so, I mean, if you want to have a look at the page 73 and it's, um, you know, I was just thinking in terms of like the, you know, the first preset, undertake the preset to refrain from taking the life of any living creature. So, you know, on a, on a basic level, that's kind of quite, you know, uh, no, that's uh, just not killing and not harming, and I guess the the, the encouragement was that, the, that as you know, as the path develops and as we're practicing, that as wisdom grows, that we kind of um, kind of deepen into our, our understanding of those precepts and really starting to look at the implications of our actions. And uh, so, for me, that that first precept that then moves into a sense of well, you know, harmlessness and how am I living in ways that are um, you know, conducive to that, and what are the ways that I'm still d- doing or participating, or um, <coughs> through ignorance supporting, that um, contribute to the destruction of life, um, you know, on, on this planet. And you know, that's so. Then it kind of goes from the very personal to the you know very global in a sense, because uh, you know, then it's very much you know, down to the, the way we use our, you know, as consumers and, uh, you know, the way that we, you know, in the choices that we're making, the, you know, the, the, I was talking yesterday about the how much of the rainforest is being destroyed for, um, you know, to raise livestock and that's, um, you know, causing huge destruction. I mean, not only for the livestock that are going to get slaughtered, but for the, you know, all the animals and, you know, that were living in that forest and then the destruction of the forest. So, you know, there's a lot of harm there, and then, uh, you know, I'm sure we can all think of examples, you know, and just, um, just you know, like having meetings like this starting to, um, you know, just become more aware of the, you know, the ways that we're living, that we could, and it's, if there's, like Sister was saying, just small changes that we can begin to make, um, you know, to actually, um, you know, just tread more lightly on this planet, you know, and uh, just... You know, then going on to the second preset, the basic, you know, basically not not stealing, not taking what is not freely given to us, and you know, when we look at, you know, the way that we're sort of treating, you know, the planet and, uh, you know, the other people and other beings on it, you know, there's um, a sort of grand act of theft on a huge scale, really, and just a lot of just taking, 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 and uh, you know, we watched a, a little thing the other day called the story of stuff, and it was talking about how richer countries in the developed world, you know, get to the limits of their capacity and so then just start taking, 
you know, from other countries and just just elsewhere, somewhere else, you know, and it's just, um, you know, really, you know, it, it, this world has been given to all of us and, uh, you know, it's, um, there's kind of this kind of sense of just snatch and grab and, and then call it mine, but, you know, it wasn't really ever given. It's, and so that's just that we're living in this kind of paradigm that... Um, you know, and it's, we need to sort of change the way we're thinking. It's you know, very encouraging to hear about the community garden and the sense of, you know, just re-establishing a sense of community and sharing and that actually we need to kind of work together, you know, rather than this sense of just getting what's mine and what isn't mine. And uh, So, you know, shifting from a sense of, you know, um, taking what is not given to a sense of, well, how in my giving, you know, can I... Does it become a mutually beneficial, um, you know, that in my giving to others, that I, in whatever ways I can, it's, uh, you know, that's the, the way that I can most benefit myself, and that we can, you know, the more that we sort of recognise that, the more we try to just hold on to our own, you know, that actually that's that's kind of that system is no longer serving us anymore. Um, and the next precept on the most basic level is about you know, sex, you know, sexual misconduct um, or for us um, like abstinence so you know, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about that much more in a sense of um, like right relationship so you know, just hearing about the, you know, for instance the little girls in Cambodia and the sense of you know, this, um, you know, the sex trade and you know, children in the sex trade and you know, and then the, the kind of rape of the planet, really, that's you know happening on a mass scale, and this is wrong relationship, and uh, this is um, you know, just to again move from that sense of just our personal relationships to that sense of uh, you know global community, and how are we kind of relating to that, and uh, just to sort of you know just to become more aware of these issues and where we can. Still saying to, to speak up about it and to uh, just start to sort of see the links, really, from uh, you know, from the, you know, maybe something we go and buy in the shops, you know, today, and how that's, you know, what that may be supporting in those countries quite far away. And like so Desmond Tutu was talking about divestment, you know, we've got to do because he's seeing the effect, of, you know, directly of you know, um, people in, in the country he's trying to take care of, and just. Yeah, just to really um, consider on a, on a much bigger scale how we're relating really to the, the planet and the beings, not just human beings, but the beings that we share this planet with. And the next one, you know, I undertake the precept to refrain from forced and harmful speech. So there's, you know, obviously just the basic not lying, but, you know, as Sister was saying, we're kind of, you know, living in this mass delusion that is... Uh, you know, supported on a big scale by the by the media, and uh, you know it's kind of difficult. We've been, there's been you know so much um, you know we've been lied to really, and it's like actually how to you know kind of wake up out of that and how to kind of find ways to inform ourselves. You know, like in meetings like this of what is really going on, and then to um, as far as we can to sort of share that message because. Uh, you know, people are being so bombarded with so much misinformation that, that, that that's why there's so much confusion and a sense of overwhelm. Or what we know also happens is attention being diverted. You know, we've seen again and again that 
suddenly the media really hones in on something that, you know, and then you find at that same time there was something else that, you know, they were trying to keep the attention away from. And uh, just, um, you know, considering that precept in terms of actually just, you know, trying to um, inform ourselves of what is more of what is really going on and to, to use our speech to, to share that wherever we can. And uh, the final one is the precept about not consuming intoxicating drink and drugs which lead to carelessness. And so, you know, that also makes me think about just um, something about clarity of mind, really, and just, you know, again, it comes back to that, that actually not just, you know, letting our minds get just intoxicated by the, you know, the media and advertising, you know, just in kind of indulging our desires, really, in... in um, in ways of just really looking at how we, how in certain following certain desires, we're part of this chain of um, destruction, really. And just, you know, what are the things that, that I could choose to let go of? And I mean, what just came to my mind is the thing of like something like when everyone found out about Nestle and the, the whole thing with the baby milk. And, you know, up till then it was just a nice chocolate bar and just, uh, you know, it's like actually. So really thinking about what you know, consumption and ethical choices, and um, not just about renunciation, but also about you know finding ways to support cooperatives <coughs> and um, more sustainable forms of, of you know, agriculture. Somebody was talking about permaculture last night and how that's been used in very skillful ways on on quite a big scale. So. So not just like renunciation of, of what is harmful, but really finding out how to support what is skillful and uh, sustainable, you know, and, and sharing that information again. I think that, that always comes back to that point. Yeah, I don't know, just a, a final note. I was just thinking about that. I can't remember all of it, but there was a, a poem from the, somebody from the World War II, probably people met <coughs> Pastor Martin Niemola, I think was his name. And it's the one where it's, um, you know, first they came for the Jews and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the Catholics and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Catholic. And so it goes on and eventually it says, then they came for me and I didn't, and then there was no one left to speak up. You know, and I think, you know, thinking about what's going on in places like Cambodia and Africa, it's like maybe it's not yet right on the doorstep of the average American or, you know, a person in the UK. And yet, you know, you know, are we going to wait until it's, uh, you know, kind of, yeah, coming kind of right? Or in, really, in some ways, it really is on the doorstep. But I think there's still the fact that we can still maintain, to some degree, this kind of business as usual model, kind of shows that it's not really beaten down the doors yet. And yet, you know, that's because the problem has been for so far kind of shafted on to the developing world and. Uh, so I think again, just that sense of responsibility that comes with waking up to this. To uh, you know, just think not to wait, not to wait to start. You know, um, taking some action like a Bhikkhu Bodhi's BGR we'll work with that excellent work, and uh, just you know, within you know whatever big or small ways we can, just uh, you know, find some way to act. And, hmm. I really appreciate. Um, the sisters being here. It's so lovely. I'd really enjoy doing this more often. And it, and it actually points out what I'd like to share, which is 
to really consider how does it feel. And I think holding that question of how does it feel can really help guide us to right action. So when Sister Jayati was talking about the precepts and in the beginning it can feel perhaps like you have to give something up that you're used to and you don't want to do it. But I can tell you that over time keeping the precepts has put in motion this kind of purification process. And then really, how does it feel to live that way? It's just so much better. There's such a, a feeling of satisfaction and settledness and, and lack of fear because you, you really don't have to worry about having done anything really wrong for a long time. And there's a, a story that Ajahn Sachito told at the retreat in June about a monk who was living at the city of 10,000 Buddhas who is American and he is living in a Chinese monastery and <clears throat> he was thinking a lot about blueberry pie and wishing he could have a blueberry pie <coughs> and he thought so much about the blueberry pie and finally someone brought him a blueberry pie and He received it after midday, and you're not supposed to have food after midday, but he really wanted to eat some, and so he thought, where can I go? And he went up on the roof, be up on the roof away from everyone, and he's got his blueberry pie, and then he sees the master, Master Wa, walking meditation on the roof of all places. And he's like, what am I going to do with this pie? And he hides it behind his back, and he thinks, I know. I'll walk meditation behind the master and then he won't see. So he's in the process. And all of a sudden the master turns and he says, How does it feel? (laughs) And so one of the things that we can all notice is that there are some pretty uncomfortable feelings that we have about the way things have gone on our planet. And what I notice is that when I, when I get together with other people who are envisioning a change in direction, and they can start to lay it out and actually see what this world will be like when we cut our carbon emissions by 80%, when we eradicate poverty, when we start to restore, really restore our natural systems, which are all in decline. What it'll be like when we stabilize population through educating women and giving them a voice in their, in their government and in their, in their lives. And all of those things are completely doable. We have the ability, we have the technology, we have the understanding. We can do that. We can create a world that runs on um, renewable energy rather than on fossil fuel energy. And we can acknowledge that in the past, the fossil fuel economy did some great things. We've got medical advancements that we wouldn't have had otherwise. We've got communication advancements that we wouldn't have had otherwise. And there 
there are many things that we can identify about the advancement. We wouldn't have even been able to produce this many people on the planet without the use of fossil fuels. And like so many things that we make use of in our lives, in our personal lives, that help us cope with a situation, and we keep using that method and using that method until it becomes pathological and, and it turns to being something that's unhealthy. And what's, what's important is noticing how it feels. And when we notice how it feels and we're honest about that, we let that in and we start to investigate its roots, then we have this opportunity to put a stop to the sort of pathological continued usage of those coping mechanisms and those habits and tendencies. And we can show each other the way. We can acknowledge how we feel. We can acknowledge how it feels to come together. So the, the best way to overcome depression, anxiety, fear about what's happening to our planet is to act. And the action that inspires my heart the most is when I go out with, you know, 40,000 other people <laughs> who are carrying signs that say, we can do this. This is, this is what we need to do. And sometimes you think, well, there are lots of different issues. We have issues with the need for health care. We have such an economic disparity. We have problems with, with housing. We have all kinds of stuff going on. We have, you know. But actually, it, it all starts to congeal. You can kind of see how it all relates. How the Occupy movement is completely related to the environmentalist movement how social justice, political justice, environmental justice are all really the same thing. Different faces, different, different light on the same thing. And we all really know what helps. And we all really know that kindness, compassion, fairness, <coughs> humility, <coughs> those are the things that we all admire, everybody everybody. We already know what works. And if we really keep coming back to how does it feel, hmm. then then we know what to do. And the more we do things that are positive and we, and we feel that, the more we're going to do. The more courage we have to talk about it, the more courage we have to take the next step. And, you know, when people say, but I'm not an activist, and I don't want to be an activist. And Okay. But if the activists get out there and they create an event, won't you show up? <laughs> just, to, just to put your stamp of approval on it. Just to show that you care. I don't think about this as political. Nuns get, nuns, monks, you know, there's a, there's a common criticism that says, you're not supposed to be doing this. This is political. I don't see this as political. And I can tell you why. It's not against anyone. It's for everyone. It's for everyone. 
There's not one person who's pulling this in a direction towards destruction that as soon as they would see the, what's going on and turn around that we wouldn't embrace. We would embrace them all. And everything that we're doing is for everyone. Even the ones who are saw on the limb we're sitting on. <laughs> we want to take the saw out of their hands. <laughs> but we want everyone to be able to live in safety. Relative safety. Everyone to be able to have a chance to have an education and, and have enough food to eat and have clean water and live in an environment that you don't have to be afraid of, of, of it all falling apart, going up in flames. There was a seven-year-old here who said there are problems with every place in the world. He was talking about the kinds of problems his generation is facing, not the kind we faced when we were seven, but to know the kinds of problems there are now, the oceans being 30% more acidic, the polar ice caps melting, the water supply is drying up because the glaciers are going away. You know, you know, we have people with a lot of education denying that this is happening or that human beings have something to do with it, but I'll bet you every farmer at the foot of Kilimanjaro knows exactly what's going on and they know why. Go figure. So I think it's really, it's really time to come together. It's really time to <coughs> inspire each other. It's really time to... <laughs> to share with each other and and to stand in that truth that every one of you has been talking about. Stand in truth. Speak the truth. Don't let the falsehood be spoken without putting your word in. And then act on the truth by living it. When I was, um, years ago when I was in ministry school, Reverend O'Brien, who was head of that program, said that there are the values that we have, and then there are the value indicators. And what she said, a, a value indicator is something that you say you believe, but a value is something that you act on and you tell other people about. And the Buddha talked about that. You know, when a monk refrains from killing living beings or... Anyone, anyone, not just monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen, anyone. When you refrain from killing living beings yourself and you speak in praise of refraining from killing living beings. And how else does it go? Do you know what the other parts are? There's about four things that the Buddha identifies. So you value not killing living beings and then you don't do it and then you talk about not doing it and you praise others for not doing it, this is how we start to make change happen. So, there's so much more that can be said, but it's starting to get late, so I'm going to stop right there, and, and I just want to appreciate everyone who's come and everyone who's spoken, and I want to open this up and give you a chance to respond.
I said, well, thank you. Getting <laughs> much benefit from anybody. The, um, the encouragement there, <coughs> on a global scale, on a community scale, for me on a, on a personal scale, I really appreciate because right now I'm working on trying to figure out what to do next and how can, like sort of right livelihood thing, how can I take my skills and everything and best apply them and the suggestion of meditating to clarify that um, is well taken, and I appreciate that very much because I often forget that that tool is available. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know why. Um, so I just I really much very much have very much gratitude for like it seems like I it, it, it seems. Yeah, I want. I, right now, I teach environmental science at a community college. I just found out today that class is probably not going to be available for me to teach anymore. And now I'm like, but how am I going to get the word out? And maybe <coughs> by losing a class, you know, by losing two classes of 24 people each, maybe that will open me up to be able to somehow do bigger work, I, I don't know, but I, I just, it was, thank you very much, it's <laughs> like, that's, because I want to, this, this is probably, you know, teaching this, I know, that this is probably the most important, pervasive, interlinked problem that we face, like, hands down. Without doubt. Hands down, and, and it is linked to absolutely everything, and it's a huge problem, mm -hmm. and it's overwhelming when people first come into mm -hmm. it and start learning about it, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, you know, and when it's this and that and the other, what in the heck can I do?" So it's just really important work. There was an article read, I read <coughs> recently, which actually I should have brought, but I wanted to sort of get input from. But as teachers about it, you can send us the link. But just to summarize, it's a calm opinion piece by a philosopher in the newspaper about what motivates people, and it was about the afterlife. But the way it was framed was not the afterlife of heaven or something like that. But knowing that other people would live beyond you. And his point was that he thought that most people would not actually do much and be motivated to do much good. If they couldn't imagine that many people are not troubled by their deaths, they would be troubled by the idea that their deaths are okay so long as they know that others will survive them. And I think that is one of the challenges with the climate change thing, is that, or, or with nuclear war that we can see, we can imagine a spot where maybe nobody would survive beyond this. And that's, that's explored in horror movies, of course, and, and science fiction stories. But I, I was sort of curious whether there's some way of working with that from 
a Buddhist perspective because it seems to me the teachers I've talked to have talked about as if it's all about yourself. You're worried about yourself. You're scared of your own death. Mm-hmm. And part of me has rebelled <coughs> against that and said, well, no, it's not my own death. I know I'm going to die. I know my parents are going to die. What's scary to me, what it's hard to deal with, is species dying. Mm-hmm. Is cities dying. Mm-hmm. It's, it's um, you know, the large-scale destruction. I, I, I wonder if I know that on some level, particularly young people, you know, or people at certain points in their life, all they care about is themselves. But I think for most people, actually, that's not, it's their family they're born. Mm-hmm. So I, I wonder if you could reflect on how that would tie to this. <coughs> or if you experience that. I mean, we have, you know, on our, we have a, like an Ikotama website and we have page, you know, on our website and there, there's one clip which is called uh, the emphatic, em, how does it work? Empathic. Empathic. Okay. I always say it wrong. Empathic civilization. You know, and it speaks about what's called the mirror, the mirror neurons, you know, that science, I think in the 60s or 70s, they found out, you know, that actually that we are wired for empathy. And I think, and, you know, that's part of, of this old paradigm, you know, which has to actually break down because it is, it's a story which we tell ourselves, you know, that we are only worried about ourselves. And, and this is actually, even science has proved it already, this is not the case. But because it's, it's so much, you know, indoctrination is going on in that way, this is what people kind of believe. But I can also you know, kind of empathize with what you are saying, you know, that it's, you know, to, to kind of to, to consider the possibility, you know, that that all of the beautiful animals and, and nature and people and that all of that is going to come to an you know, come to dust and mud and, and chaos, you know, that's like a, such a huge grief, you know, to kind of even imagine it. Yeah. And I think you know, it's like a, I think it's like a shift in consciousness. You know, that there is there's people with a different level of consciousness all coexisting at the same time, isn't it? Mm. And there are some like this and some like that, and and it seems to be you know like what's the, the big corporations, you know, which they are not real people. You know, even they are counted. I've heard you know, you know in in the administration they are counted as people. But they actually, they don't have a heart. You know, they are not real people, and this is where they can make so, yeah. so super, uncompassionate decisions. You know, because they really are not not really people, and you know, this whole is it's just like a this whole you know ignorant understanding of the way things work. It is, and has gotten in, has gotten such a momentum now, like a spinning wheel. Even you stop pedaling it. It still turns, and then you know, we're just standing there, and we think we can't stop. I mean, I don't think that we believe that. I don't believe it. You know, I think it can, it can be changed, but I think in the big, this is how it starts in the beginning. It is overwhelmed because of the hugeness of all of it. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, there's people like, for example, Joanna Macy. Mm-hmm. She she works since over thirty years. I think she's going all around the world to teach. 
exactly that shift, you know, from thinking only about yourself onto this biggest cabin and, and having the courage you know, to connect with that grief about what you are saying, you know, that all of that, if we don't taking care of it, is all gonna go down, you know, and then from the willingness, you know, to connect with that grief, the wisdom is gonna spring forth from it, you know, for everybody in their individual ways, you know, that we, even, you know, Bill McKibben, his biography I'm reading at the moment, he says, you know, very often he doesn't know but then, because he's he's stepping out there in truth, he's courageous. He's putting himself on the line, you know. It just comes out. Mm-hmm. Watch as people show up and so on, you know. And we can do the same mm-hmm. in a smaller way, you know. Gandhi talked about the same thing. Yeah. That he didn't know, and and then he would, the time would come and he would know. Yeah. Who said it's Gandhi? Gandhi. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't like there was this master plan, but you know, like there, there was when it, when the time came, something came through him that he didn't expect. <laughs> it's beautiful. Well, in a way, that article made me kind of help, help, hopeful because if people really only care about themselves, it seems like we're goners. Yes. But if most people confronted with the thought that they would survive, that everybody they know would be gone or that they would die and everybody they know would be gone are not really happy, yeah. then yeah. then that motivates them to make the changes they need. Yeah. I think there's even a sutta somewhere, you know, where the Buddha says about that the time will come, you know, when a human being will be, you know, very, very kind of happy to, to just meet one. Mm-hmm, yes. You know, when they're wandering mm-hmm. around. Mm-hmm. He speaks about yeah. kind of huge destruction. <coughs> and then, and then but in terms of start to come out, and they're little groups of people, who, and then they start to come out, and then they connect with each other. They're happy. And they, re- they recognize the importance of virtue. So, uh, mm-hmm. But you know, in, in the Buddhas, in, in, the, in, the, in some of the scriptures, there is like about, the Buddha speaks about the arising and ceasing, you know, of words, not only of of beings, but of whole world systems, you know, and and that's natural. Yeah. But what we're doing is we are doing we are doing things that cause an unnatural demise. Yeah, we are forcing the, the planet into you. Pushing it into an acceleration. Yeah, yeah, and we want to turn that around. Yeah, it's one thing that comes to mind that uh, Joanna Macy does. Sister Joanna and I were both in a retreat with her. Um, is, is to is to go back um, and you can even do it, you can actually walk people are actually walking in a spiral but you can do it, also do it in a line to go back and to draw on all of the <coughs> past in your life and then go back through your family then back through ancestors yeah. right back to Africa it's very, very right back to the very beginning of, of the human race and then Back and gather the fruits of that. Gather the fruits of, and, and it can be it can be so even terribly challenging things that happen. Really. But then you gather the fruits of the strength of those people who survived and then you carried on, and the strength of the people who helped each other, and the strength. Of, so you kind of gather the fruits of, of the challenges that the human race has been through, and then you bring it right back to your own life here and now. And then uh, so you. And, then, and there's also an exercise, so that's like 
that's like drawing on the support from the past or from the ancestors, you could say. And then there's another exercise we do one-to-one, where, where I am me now at this time, feeling like, I, you know, I do what I can, but it feels so little, and I don't know if it's really going to really help, and, but I really don't want to just not do anything, so I do what I can. And then I meet somebody from seven, generation, seven generations forward, and they and that person seven generations forward says, oh, we heard about your people, we heard about you back then when it was all in, in such a terrible time. And that, you know, against all odds, you were standing up and, you know, facing those massive corporate, um, the, the massive corporate greed and destruction, and you, you people actually did something and, and thanks to you and your and your and, and like so from my perspective of me now it felt like what can I do? I'm kind of a bit kind of powerless. But then from their perspective, even in your even just with just those little people, you stood up and you did something and because of that we're here now. So it's very empowering. Because we can so easily feel like we just can't miss the point, can't do enough. And, but it's like, well, who knows how much it takes to break through? So only seven percent, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not that much. Yeah. So drawing on the yeah, so drawing on, on the support mm-hmm. from the past. I, I I also really just draw on the earth. You know, drawing the power of the earth to come through. Sure. The Dharma, all of it is, is we're instruments. Chana Macy has done a lot of good work. You know. There's one book which is called I don't know. How's it called? It's called with the mess thing. Uh, uh, yeah, it's called active hold. Yeah. And there's a lot of guidance, you know, like exercises and things in there, and also her website and there's YouTube videos and so it's on. It's called active hold. She wanted to call it How to Face the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy. Oh. So that's which is a great title. It's a, well, that's a subtitle, but I didn't want to call it that. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of very realistic, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I know one of the things that for me stands out is I've been bicycling this year, and I read recently a couple of little article thingies written by bicyclists, including the head of the local environmental protection agency in Region 9, who was a bicyclist, just talking about how it feels good. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a very good example that I think most people can um, relate to, where once you start doing it, at first it's hard, but it, when you start doing it, it feels good. You start reconnecting with your environment. You start seeing things that you didn't see in a car. Your health gets better. So I kind of think we need to promote stuff like that that doesn't feel like renunciation so much as mm-hmm. opening up a new... Mm-hmm. And, and it's helpful because there is, there is starting to be a bicycle culture developing here. And we have to have something that uproots the idea that you need a car. Mm. <laughs> or for example, you know, not eating meat that has such a big impact as well, or eating less meat. Mm-hmm. Because isn't it, you said it's like, I don't know if this is exactly true, but I've heard that, you know, that the meat, what's the meat industry, what the, the carbon footprint is greater than the carbon footprint of yeah, all transport. It yes. is. It's pretty bad. Well, isn't that, that mind-boggling? Yeah. I mean, when I heard that, I just thought, oh, I can't believe it. 
-hmm. One of the things that I use to teach my students is a um, is an online uh, like quiz thing. What's your carbon footprint? Mm -hmm. And I have them go through it, and I found that my carbon footprint was a quarter of that of most of my students that of the ones that ate meat. Like mm -hmm. you adjust the little meat thing, or, you know, you, you tell what your diet is, and it just, your carbon footprint just, <laughs> just goes so drastically. Just send us that link. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I give you a, a card. Without okay, any. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I have, I have. find a good one, isn't it? Yeah, there's, there's a car, there's carbon footprint one, there's a water footprint one, there's a nitrogen footprint one, oh, I've got yes. all these yes. <laughs> yes. Foot, like footprints online, online. yeah. Right. Well, and also the methane. Exactly. And, a, and the methane gets produced by these animals because they're not being fed the diet that they should be fed, which is grass. They're being yeah. fed grain, and they can't mm -hmm. digest it. So, and then the being raised in factory farm conditions, <coughs> there's so much manure. So like yeah. as, as that raw, as that rods that produces. Well, and that's more why it smells so bad. Right. Animals don't smell like that when they're out in the open and have the space that they can. Yeah, the factory farming model is just, and, and the amount of fossil fuel it takes to get feed, unnatural feed to these cows and then to get yeah. them transported and then yeah. to get them processed, the whole yeah. processing plant. Thing. It takes it's so just, much water and so much. Yeah, yeah. so it's just <coughs> like. It's so mad. Cutting, yeah. cutting it, that's the thing, you know. It struck me when you were talking about the the pre you know the the five precepts that first one no harm if you follow vegetarian if you follow vegetarianism that's it you know like you, that you drop off so it much of cuts that. it back I, I mean in in one you know it's like one of the most drastic things that you can do and I know people who would love to eat meat but don't because they don't want the harm to the animals. Yeah. And I know people who have always eaten meat who have gone to completely vegetarian diets because of what's happening to the planet. Yeah. And I really, I mean, I'm not one of them. I've been a natural vegetarian forever and never liked meat, so it's not been a big thing to give up. It was a Oh man, I can be healthy without eating that stuff because of that feeling. <laughs> but um, but for those who who set it aside because they see the results, and then you know they get very excited and happy and delighted to see how tasty things can be and how good they feel. It's great. Yeah, just like following on from your point about the cycling. Actually, it's the same thing that like you're saying. Actually, rather than oh my god, I'm going to get something I like that actually when we sort of start to really tune into what's good for us and what's good for the planet, then it's like, oh, that's, there's a real joy that comes with that. And it just came to my mind, because last weekend we were um, supporting the British Bicycle Pilgrimage, and this group of cyclists, about 100 of them cycle. Oh, yeah. Like 140 miles. Yeah, that's right, in a couple of days. And our role was actually we were being driven along in a car, and we were kind of, we offered some meditation and... Yeah, did a blessing and, Cheered them and uh, we were sort of joking it's like oh we've kind of got the luxury you know version and, but it was interesting because at one of the stops I was speaking to one of the cyclists and she started talking about the sound of the birds 
right. and certain things that she'd seen on the side of the road. And I thought, oh, that's the piece that we miss. You know, we're going along in our vehicle, and it's, mm-hmm. I mean, it couldn't have been otherwise, what, or it could have been otherwise, who knows, but it's, that's how it was. And it was just like, you know, rather than thinking, oh, it's really hard, I've got to cycle up that hill, it's like there was this precious quality that was just so much more in tune with uh, nature, the natural world, and the joy that comes with that. So, and your body. And your body as well, kind of tunes out all the dirt. So just to sort of, you know, recognise it's actually it's something about changing habits, but actually, you know, once if we can make that, that shift, then we come into something much more, sustain, a much more sustainable sense of, of joy. It reminds me of a quote from Walden from Thoreau, where he's complaining bitterly about the new train that's going through and that it's going at 30 miles an hour. And he's like, How can you see anything at 30 miles an hour? I'll just stick to walking, thank you. And I just, I love that. Oh, I love Thoreau. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Actually, I came in a qu- with a question posed to me, um, not to not to think it's my opinion, but I, I couldn't uh, give a good answer for it, so I'd like to throw it out to the panel. The uh, concept is that every so many years, there's going to be global warming, be it. 20, 30 years. It's a cycle of the planet. Now I could hear one answer being delusion. <laughs> or, uh, but, uh, there's um, on our website on the eco page that I said you mentioned, there's a video, a BBC video of uh, David Attenborough. Okay. Yes. And he speaks about that quite early on. It's, it's, there are two one-hour videos, and I must admit, towards the end, I, I don't the second. the second one. I don't agree with his solutions, but mm-hmm. in the beginning, he just he point, he very clearly describes that. So he points out about uh, this long ago, the, the planet was this this like two degrees. But it was now warmer, mm-hmm. and uh-huh. it shows the different effects that had, okay. and that there is this natural shift in temperature. Yes. And <coughs> over the last hundred years, it's gone. It, it, it normally goes like this, and it's gone. Uh-huh. And and if we even and his what he's saying is if we stop now mm-hmm. at the rate it's at now and just level out, which means like massive change in lifestyle. Yes. It still will be warmer than it it needs to be, and that will have an effect. But if we don't stop. Then we're in trouble. Well, one way that I think I heard that addressed was um, in in regions, in different regions, there are climate cycles of drought and wetter mm-hmm. weather that might be 20 years or 100 years. Mm-hmm. But what's different right now is that the thing is shifting for the entire planet at once, and it's been a very long time since we've had the entire planet shifting at the same time. And that's so when people say, well, you know, more hurricanes or warmer weather, that's just natural, but that's natural for Mm -hmm. a particular area, but not for the entire ocean Mm -hmm. at the same time. The other thing is just looking at the data, you can track, you can see the temperature change, and you can measure how much more carbon dioxide there is in the atmosphere. 
And it's a matter of physics how much X amount of carbon dioxide increases temperature on a global scale. Mm -hmm. And you can see, are mm -hmm. the two things correlated? Mm -hmm. Is the temperature rise that we see explained by the amount of carbon dioxide rise that we see? Mm -hmm. And it absolutely is. It's, it's, it tracks, like, yeah. you know, over the past yeah. 20, 25 years, you know, at first it was, you know, the temperature was a little warbly, but over the past 25 years, it is just, goes it's, hand in hand. It's not... It's, if you look at the data, it's not it's not even really debatable at this at this juncture. You know, maybe 25 years ago you could hem and haw. Now, absolutely not. And you know, 97 percent of all the scientists are in in you know in unison about that. 97 percent. Yes. 97 percent of all the peer-reviewed papers. <coughs> Agree. Peer reviewed papers okay. agree. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's overwhelming. So the only ones that don't are, you know, really fringe, you know, yeah. um, influenced and bought, bought, bought off. Well, thank you. I There's always going to be people who see it a different way, and, and that's. That's just something you have to accept no matter what. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But because so what they said is that you know if 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 you know there were ninety seven doctors looking at a patient and they all mm -hmm. said you need to have have surgery right now and three say no it could wait. <laughs> you ignore those. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they think because those three are supported with lots of money, they get much more. <laughs> even if they are, even if they are, even if they're honestly, <laughs> that's their opinion. That yeah. no, something else should be done. You know, we don't normally operate that way. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I needed words to yeah. <laughs> respond. Yeah. The the whole database of it, mm -hmm. looking at the data. And seeing how, just how closely correlated it is, yes. you just it's it, it's just ridiculous to argue it anymore. I mean that that carbon dioxide isn't the cause of the changes that we see. It's yeah. you know, apropos, if any of you are interested, you know, there's a free course uh, on on the web on the web now, a ten module course yeah. about climate literacy. I've just started it on our eco page, there is a link to it, so okay. I've just did the first mo module and it is lit video, le you know, video lessons, like 10-15 mm -hmm. minutes, it's mm -hmm. two women actually giving that course, I find it, mm -hmm. so if you have any questions of that nature, they're going to be answered there. Okay, thank you. I found that really quite helpful earlier. I'm kind of hoping that we could get a, a Green Sangha chapter started again, there's still one. I was working on with one in, here on the peninsula, and I know there was one in San Francisco. I don't know if there still is. Which is not specifically Buddhist, but is. Yeah. I mean, when I heard about this, I thought, gee, hearing this is making me feel confident that maybe we could do that again. Isn't that, you know, where we were when we heard China Macy with this man, you know, years ago? Yes. 
before you went to Thailand. Just earlier this year, we did a cleanup in East Valley with a green sand. Right. On their website, they have uh, dates that they're doing stuff. And I'm hoping also, I was really inspired by what you all said, and I'm hoping that we could share that, what you said, like maybe with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship system, state system, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know how to do that, but if if this is posted somewhere, I would put a link and say this was a great talk. Have you posted on the other website? We need to post it. We'll post it on the website and. I don't know if we can post it. We should be able to post it on Dharma Seed. Yes, I can yeah. do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Please do. Yeah, Great. I can. But then I would have to post it on the Aloka Vihara. Is that okay? Sure. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.